So this morning, we are going to be in uh, Deuteronomy 18. So if you want to turn there, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 22. And that is the fifth book in the Old Testament from the beginning. And while you're turning there, there's a bit of context I need to explain before I even read the text. Um, and so like before even reading the passage, the one in the passage that is speaking is Moses, and he is speaking to the Israelites, and he's addressing the Israelites because this is a new generation that he's speaking to, not the people that came out of Egypt during the Exodus, but rather a new generation. And so he is in Deuteronomy relating the law that was received at Mount Sinai and also giving them instructions about when they enter the land. And also the reason he's doing this is because Moses is not going to be going with them because of a disobedience in the past. And so in this story, they're currently on the other side of the Jordan River, not yet in the promised land, not yet in the land of Canaan. Um, and so they're right across the, the Jordan River there. And so I'm going to read the passage now. So starting in verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so as you can see here, it's Moses speaking to the Israelites about prophets. And so point number one here, um, I'm going to give three points. I'll say point number one before I give the point, so it's rather clear. Uh, point number one is God is the one who gives the land. For example, notice in verse 9, it says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and also in verse 12, it says, because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out. And so this is the promise that was given to Abram concerning his descendants inheriting the land, and is, this is the like fulfillment of that promise. This promise is now coming to fruition. And so notice that, like I just pointed out, that it is God who is the one who is giving the land. God is the one who is driving the nations out here. So God is the active agent in this whole situation here. God is the one that is doing this. And so a good example of this to help explain what that actually looked like when it began to take place was uh, the contrast between Joshua and the Israelites versus Jericho and Joshua and the Israelites versus the very next city, which is Ai. 
Um, when they take Jericho, they do as God said. They simply march around the city. The walls fall down, and they go straight into the city. And then the very next city, Ai, they send spies, and they, the spies come back and say, hey, they don't really have very many people. We only need to send like a couple thousand guys. We don't really need to send that many people. It's not really going to be uh, that tough of a battle. So they go up with, according to their calculations and their adequate numbers that they have, um, and they lose. They do not win, even though they, according to their calculations, they should have very easily taken the city. In fact, they actually flee away and flee before all of the people of Ai. So what was different? Well, the difference was that God did not fight for them at Ai. Another verse that makes this a bit more clear, or the point that is being made here, is uh, in Psalm 147, verse 10. It says, God does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. You may be thinking that doesn't really clear anything up, Will. That doesn't make it clear to me at all. Well, the very next verse in that psalm, he says that God has favor on those who fear him. So the point in that psalm is not that God looks at the legs of a man and just goes, ew. It's the fact that God, by his own, I mean, man, by his own strength, cannot capture a city, can do nothing apart from God actually willing it to be so. And so God here in the passage we're looking at and in the taking of the land, God is the active agent. He is the one who is dispossessing the nations. But though God is the active agent and though he is the one who is dispossessing the nations, Israel still had to go. For example, notice in verse 9 it says, when you enter the land. And it says, for those nations in verse 14, which you shall dispossess. And so the, the Israelites, they couldn't just sit idly by and say, well, God has promised the land, so we're going to get it regardless of what we do. Or, I mean, God doesn't delight in the legs of a man, so like, why even try? Like, no, that wasn't the case. God promised the land, but it was also necessary for the Israelites to go into the land and take it. And when they go into the land, we see that not only do they go into the land, they go into the land and fight with all of their might. For, for example, when they take care of the sin problem that caused them to lose at AI, they go back and they don't just say, well, God's promised it, so we can just go in and we're just going to win. Well, they actually set up a plan. They ambush the city from behind and they draw the people out and they actually are plotting and planning. And so God's sovereignty and promise over the whole situation did not at all negate their responsibility to go and in their planning and doing that. Another interesting aspect of Israel's going in the land that you, you actually never see is you never see anyone saying, okay, well, you guys are going to go into the land, but... I'm a baker, so you guys have fun going into the land, but I'm going to be over here making uh, swords or something. I'm just a blacksmith. That's not what you see. Rather, literally everyone, regardless of their profession, is to go and take the land. And you know this because when they count the Israelites, they don't say, okay, so you're a baker, so you're not included in the armed men. You're a blacksmith, so you're not either. It's everyone above a certain age included. And so regardless of your profession, everyone is supposed to go and take the land. Well... Likewise, today, for us, God has promised the land, except in this case the land is the earth. So Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How much do the waters cover the sea? Kind of a ridiculous question to even ask. Um, Daniel 2.35, it says, The kingdom of God is like a mountain that continues to grow and grow until it literally fills the entire earth. And in Isaiah 2 Verse 2, it says that all of the nations will stream into the house of the Lord to worship him. And so, just like the Israelites, in which the promise did not negate their responsibility to go, 
Today, the fact that the promise that the kingdom of God will encompass the entire earth is a promise for us, that does not at all negate our responsibility to obey the command to go. The Great Commission, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, it says to go and make disciples of all nations. In Mark 16, it's actually worded very similar to kind of what we see in the Old Testament. It says, go into all the world, preaching the Gospel. And so, the promise is there for all of us, regardless of profession, concerning the kingdom of God expanding the world, and also the command is there for all of us, regardless of profession, regarding the uh, kingdom of God. And so, similarly to the Israelites, God was the active agent in the taking of the land for them. He is likewise the active agent in our evangelistic endeavors today. So God promised the land, but they each individually had to take up the sword. Well, today God has promised the word, but we each individually still have to take up the sword. Well, anyways. Um, and so God fought for Israel, though Israel still went and fought with all their might. Likewise, God is the one who changes hearts today, and yet we still seek to persuade men with all of our persuading. So those two things are not in conflict as we see here. Point number two. We are to be a holy nation. So notice the distinction here in uh, verse 9 when it says the distinction that's made between Israel, like Israel and those nations, or in verse 14 where it says, and those nations, but as for you, it's like very clear, like Israel is not those nations, okay? Um, it's a very clear distinction that's made there. And so I point this out because you've probably heard at some point, um, maybe even this week, maybe recently, somewhere on the internet or something, that the Israelites went into the land and they committed large-scale genocide, and that's terrible. How could you believe that? That's the worst thing ever. Um, well, genocide is the targeting of specific ethnic groups because of their ethnicity. Um, but what is the, the focus here in the passage of Deuteronomy 18? Look at verse 12. It says, For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So for a good example, this is going back to the example of Israel fighting against Ai. Why did Israel lose the first time? They lost because God was actually against them because of sin that was in the camp. Think about it later in the history of Israel, what happens? Israel actually gets removed out of the land in much the same way that these nations are removed out of the land because of their sin and the fact that they are practicing, honestly, most of the things that are here in this passage. And so, once again, look at verse 12 and notice that it says that whoever does these things, it's not just those people are doing these things, it's anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord regardless of ethnicity. But back to the point, I said we're supposed to be a holy nation, set apart, different, distinct. Those are all different words that can be used as synonyms or way to describe what the meaning of holy is. And so verse 9, it says, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. What does it mean to imitate something? Well, imitation is to become like. Is to become like something. And yet, right here, it says they're called not to become like. They're called not to imitate. And so thus, they are called to be distinct. They're called to be set apart. They're called to be holy. And you think that Israel would get the message as they're going into these nations, into the nation, into the land, and dispossessing these nations, as they're quite literally the ones that are drawing the sword as God's judgment against such deeds. Like you think that as they're drawing the sword, they would think it'd be a good idea if I didn't actually take part in the same thing they're taking part in. 
And yet, like, what ends up happening? Like, why in the world would they ever consider adopting the practices of the nations that they're dispossessing? Well, that's just the nature of sin, is it not? Doing wrong, knowing it's wrong, when you have every reason not to do wrong. Sin is irrational. It makes absolutely no sense, and it is unreasonable in the highest sense of the word. And so in the same way that we look at Israel and ask, why in the world would you ever adopt those practices? Why would you ever adopt the practices of the nations that you're dispossessing? We should ask the same questions of ourselves. For example, in Colossians 3, uh, verses 5 and 6, it says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Very similar to the passage here in Deuteronomy 18, verse 6 of Colossians 3 says, It is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. And so how often do we find ourselves sharing the gospel and yet we're ensnared to things that are contrary to the gospel? Or how often do we find ourselves calling the world to turn from its sin while we're partaking of the very thing we're calling them to turn from? And so in the same way that the wrath of God came upon such practices by the hand of Israel, the wrath of God is coming upon such practices in the final Judgment, And so we're called to be a holy people. We should not look like those who are not believers around us. And if our lives don't look any different than those who are not believers around us, we are quite literally, according to the definition, imitating the people that are around us. And so that is directly contrary to what is commanded here in Deuteronomy 18. So God is the giver of the land, and we are called to be a holy nation. Israel cannot inherit the land if they are found to be guilty of the same unrighteous deeds as those nations in it. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 9, it says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So looking at verse 14, uh, through the rest of the passage, uh, that's, this is actually the passage that caused me to even choose this passage to preach on in the first place. Um, and the reason I chose this passage, which is a, a fitting reason from what we've already heard this morning, was based on my short time in the Middle East and some interactions with Muslims, I, I heard this passage we're looking at, quoted by Muslims as being, oh, the prophet that was raised up, that's Muhammad. And immediately I would just be like, well, no. But I didn't have any reason. Like I was just like, I know that that's not right based on other things in Scripture, but I'm like, ah, and obviously they're hungry for a reason behind me saying no, and honestly I was kind of caught off guard by it the first few times. And so, so what is this passage talking about? Well, let's not forget that uh, in verse 14 here, it says, Those nations which you shall dispossess, they listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. And so witchcraft and diviners, in a time of need, when you needed a revelation from God or something, the pagan nations would go run to a medium and ask them, to please inquire of the dead for me so that I can have some sort of help here. And so God is saying here, Not so with you, but rather in time of need, I will raise up a prophet that is going to be addressing the various matters that are pressing Israel. And so this passage is actually not primarily speaking of one particular prophet. It's actually speaking of the entire order of prophets that is to come following Moses. And that's clear also from what is referenced here in verses 16 and 17. In verses 16 and 17 of the passage, it talks about, this is according to all that you asked in in Horeb on the day of the assembly. And this is a reference back to uh, Exodus 19 and 20. And that's the giving of the Ten Commandments. And pretty horrifying account to read uh, because Moses says, Consecrate yourselves, for in three days God is going to come down and deliver his law. And so they do on the third day, 
the entire mountain is on fire. There's smoke, there's thunder, there's lightning, and the earth is quaking. And rightly so, all of the Israelites are like, like we're going to die. And so they asked Moses, hey, can you please go talk to God for us and then come back and speak to us and relate all of the words that he gave to you to us rather than us have this whole exchange where we're just like about to die because this mountain is, we're going to end up dying in this whole situation. And so the reference here, whenever it says uh, God will raise up a prophet like me, the reference there is that in the same way that Moses functioned on Mount Sinai where he came down and delivered God's words, he spoke with God's authority to the people of Israel. That is what's going to happen later with all of the prophets. They're going to speak with God's authority to the people of Israel. And you see this also in verses 18 and 19 as it says that he's going to speak with God's authority and literally his words are going to be God's words and his words will have the exact same binding nature and weight as if God himself was in the flesh speaking directly to them. And so hearing that, like reading that there's a man that's going to be speaking on behalf of God and he's going to be bearing God's authority immediately, I'm going, uh, that's a bit problematic. You're basically just asking for false prophets at this point. You're asking for someone to get up and say, I'm speaking on behalf of God and just completely abuse power. Well, interestingly, this passage actually addresses that. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Notice here, though, this is only in the negative. It says, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And the answer is that if it does not come true. This does not say the opposite of that, that if it comes true, it equals profit. It's rightly so. If I say the saints win their next game, and it happens, I'm not now some sort of divinely authorized prophet of God. That's just a correct prediction on my behalf. And so, the question then arises, okay, so what is the test in such cases? And the answer for that is actually found in Deuteronomy 13, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just summarize it. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1-5, through 5, it gives an example of someone who gets up, predicts something, and they predict it correctly, but they're simultaneously commanding something that is contrary to the law of God. And in that case, the person is dismissed as being a false prophet. And so, the standard that's given in Deuteronomy 13 is that they have to be teaching in conformity with the law of God. Correct prediction does not equal profit, but correct prediction plus conformity to the law of God does equal profit. And so, in summation, a prophet was raised up in time of need and also had to be in full conformity to the law of God. And we see that this takes place throughout the entire history of Israel, even as they continued to worship other gods and almost took Deuteronomy 18 as what to do rather than what not to do, and they go after other gods, and as it says, they played the harlot. Even as they continue to do all of those things, God remains faithful to his promise to raise up prophets. And then, silence for literally hundreds of years. He was raising up prophets, and out of nowhere there was nothing. There was no prophets. And this period of silence greatly increased the expectation that there was going to be coming not just another prophet, not just a prophet, but rather the prophet who would be the fulfilling, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. And you actually see this in the Gospel of John when the Pharisees come up to John the Baptist and they say, are you the prophet? That's them saying, we have this expectation of the prophet is coming because we haven't had one in hundreds of years. You also see this in the same chapter of John in verse 45. Philip runs up to Nathanael and says, we found Jesus, the one that is spoken of by Moses in the law. The Samaritan woman, likewise, in John 4, says that she knows that the Messiah is coming. And so, 
The expectation was very much so there. But needless to say, no one could have ever guessed in a million years that it would literally be God in the flesh who would be that prophet. Interestingly, Jesus in John uh, 12, verse 48, practically quotes Deuteronomy 18:19 and applies it to himself whenever he says that his very words will be the standard that will judge you if you reject his words. And also kind of funny, Jesus being God in the flesh makes the words here about the prophet speaking the very words of God. It makes those words quite literal because when Jesus spoke, he spoke the words of God being God himself. Peter in Acts 3.22, he quotes Deuteronomy 18, this exact passage, and specifically says that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So you may be thinking to yourself, great, well, you've got all this scriptural proof. Jesus is the prophet. We get it. What, what does that mean for us today? He's the pinnacle of the prophets. He's the seal. That's cool. What? So what? That's an excellent question. Um, my third point is God authorizes the one to whom we should listen. So notice the contrast here in Deuteronomy 18 with the long list of man-made religious practices and the contrast of those, all of those practices, with the one divinely approved, divinely authorized, divinely appointed way. And much like the world in which the Israelites lived, which was filled with man-made religious practices and idolatry, it only takes a trip to Barnes & Noble to the spirituality section, the self-help section, and honestly much of the religion section to see that we live in the exact same world today. And also very similar to the popular religious beliefs in the days of Israelites, much of the content found in those books is man-made at best and demonic at worst. Um, and so we live in a society in which being spiritual and open-minded and doing what makes you happy is most important. And the issue underlying all of this comes to a point with the asking of just one simple question. Says who? Who says that being spiritual is a good thing? Who determines what being spiritual even is? If Am I spiritual if I read palms? Or am I spiritual if I read tea leaves? Who's the one who determined that reading tea leaves is a way to hear from God? Which God? Who determines what is and is not open-minded? What is toleration? Who says that doing what makes you happy is what is best? What if stealing makes me happy? You see, when you're left to the ideas of society at large, you find yourself very quickly in a sea of conflicting opinions and values, and you're drowning underneath the weight of being forced to accept all of them as equally valid. And then, in stark contrast, God here in Deuteronomy 18, in one fell swoop, dismisses every man-made religious idea as both detestable and foolish. And because he dismisses them as detestable and foolish, it makes it quite ironic that throughout the Old Testament, the practices of such things are called wise men. And today, the practices of such things are referred to as enlightened, and they appear on Oprah. And so, when it comes to the Bible, the question looming behind all of these man-made religious ideas is, says who, and in very, very, very stark contrast, is clearly answered in response to man's opinions as to how to approach God and hear from God, because here we have God himself speaking on his authority, saying he himself will raise up a man who will speak with God's authority to guide his people in the way they should go. And quite different than being a mere opinion, God says that he's going to hold everyone accountable that does not listen to that prophet. Likewise, quite contrary to the every way is valid mentality popular in our society, we have John 14:6, in which Jesus declares that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. That's a bit arrogant, Jesus, to think your way is right and no one else's. That's a bit arrogant for you to tell me that you're the one that's right and not me. Well, it's actually, it's not arrogance. 
It would be arrogance if it was a mere man saying that he was right over another mere man. But this is God himself not being arrogant, but being gracious and showing us the correct way and the right way in which we are to approach him. And so God has not left us to our own devices meandering about in the darkness and trying to sift through the world's opinions and beliefs, trying to figure out if any of them are even correct. What am I going to do with my life? What's, what does it mean to be good? What is purpose? He's not left us to that. But rather, he's graciously revealed to us the way in which we should go. And at the transfiguration of Jesus, the Father speaks from heaven and literally says, this is my son. Listen to him. That's all I have, so I'm going to pray for us now. Father, thank you for today, and thank you for your word, and the truth of your word, the absolute truth of your word, and that you don't leave us to wonder about how to approach you or wonder what pleases you, but rather you have revealed it to us in your word. Thank you for Christ, his death on the cross on our behalf, and the fact that we cannot keep your word. Thank you for dying for us, Lord. I ask now that as we continue this week and continue this time together, that we will remain focused on you, Lord. We would seek your will and your word. Seek to know you first. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.